Well, I'm glad to see those of you that could um, weather the long day, because I know some of you were here last night. I enjoyed this afternoon, enjoyed getting to hear snippets of people's stories and realize that um, all of us really are layers of stories. Um, There's the story we're in right now of sitting in this conference and maybe thinking about going out to the pub afterwards and um, thinking about going home tomorrow. And then there's the layer of our calling and what we've talked about this um, weekend, how to um, minister more effectively. You know, I said when I first got here that youth pastors intimidate me. And someone asked me why, and I said, well, because... You know, you're supposed to be these wild and crazy, creative people who um, do sensational things with teenagers and um, are relevant. And um, this person said to me, yeah, that's kind of not us. <laughs> um, that there's a different purpose here, which is the purpose that I love and passionately support, um, which is... Knowing the gospel is the only answer. Um, I want to thank the worship team. Um, I don't know who you are, but you're, you ministered to me. You blessed me. Um, thank you for singing about Jesus. And I want to pray. And then we'll talk tonight about the deepest story underneath all those layers of stories. God, I thank you for the privilege of being with this group of people, and I pray for them. I pray that you will encourage them. I pray that your word will take root in in their hearts and lives and bear fruit and take root in the hearts and lives of those that they minister to. I pray that when they're discouraged, that maybe the numbers are low and things don't look as bright and shiny as Disney World, that um, they will see you and the pattern of living that you set out from the very beginning to model to us. I'm not excited about that pattern sometimes, God. I just have to admit it. I don't like being formed into the image of your dear son because it hurts. And I resist it with my flesh, with all my heart. But I pray that as we go forward tonight, maybe we'll be just a little bit more surrendered to the deepest story that we can't escape, um, that you are making us like you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to start out with this, um, I don't know which way to point. And it's not working. I don't know if I broke it already. We worked on this all day. And it's not working there. Ah. 
start out with this short clip. You might recognize it. <laughs> I think I've had some of those speaking engagements. Um, this is the beginning of the movie Little Miss Sunshine. Uh, there are two kinds of people in the world, winners and losers. Inside each and every one of you, at the very core of your being, is a winner waiting to be unleashed. These opening words we just heard by father and motivational speaker Rich Hoover. I'm in the movie Little Miss Sunshine. I mean, as the movie begins, we quickly observe that everyone in this family wants to be a winner. Ten-year-old Olive, at the beginning, um, she has dreams of winning a beauty pageant. Her father, Rich, has a nine-step program to help people put their losing habits behind them and make their dreams come true. Even Olive's awkward teenage brother, Dwayne wants to be a winner. For most of the movie, he doesn't speak and he wears black, but we do see this opening shot of him lifting weights with a picture of his hero, Nietzsche, behind him. Frederick Nietzsche was a Prussian philosopher who died insane at the age of 35, and one of his most notable quotations explains that what is good is all that heightens power in a man. And what is bad is all that is weak in us. He exhorted his followers to pity the ineffectives. Everyone in this entertaining film lives by a story. A story that at its deepest level is the idea that we can create our lives and make something of ourselves and that the goal of, of life is to be a winner. Pity the losers. I know a story. I started living by this story when, when I was in the sixth grade, 12 years old, and I was a participant in the Optimist Club speech contest. It was my first experience with competition and I won the first round. <laughs> I got first place in the second round, and I discovered I liked feeling like a winner. I got my picture in the paper. 
I mean, my parents bragged about me to all their friends, and I had two shiny trophies on my bedroom dresser drawer cheering me on. For the third round, we had to travel to Albuquerque, New Mexico for this statewide competition. And as soon as I heard all the other speakers, <laughs> I knew they were winners too. I stood at the front, lined up, you know, where the judge announces third place, second place. When they took their trophies, I knew I was not going to get the grand prize award. I didn't get any award. I felt like a loser. But I can, I can still recall standing there in shame, a forced smile on my face, congratulating the others because I'd been told to be a good loser. Um, even though I was congratulated more for being a good winner. Uh, flash forward in my story, and I'm an adult about 14 years ago in the detox unit at Lutheran Hospital in Wheat Ridge, Colorado. I tried many things to stop drinking at that point in my story. I had white-knuckled it a few times. I had read a book on breaking free from addictions. I memorized Bible verses. I attended an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, and I could not stop drinking. My parents much to their shock and dismay as they are teetotalers, they, they found me um, in my home completely intoxicated, in shock and fear. They took me to the hospital. I, I, I'm sure I smelled awful. There were unidentifiable stains on my shirt. I, I couldn't walk by myself to the bathroom to produce the urine sample requested by the emergency room nurse. My mom helped me to the bathroom that night. Um, I don't remember a lot about it, but I remember this. I remember her saying to the nurse, my daughter isn't like this. Um, she's bright and articulate. She isn't like this. She isn't a loser. That's what I heard her say. But I knew she was wrong. I was a loser trying so hard to win. Well, with all this talk last night and today of suffering, ending, talking about losing, um, we must be crazy. <laughs> but I think it's important to talk about it because there are um, two stories that are at war in our hearts. Um, the first story is that we can do it. We, we can create our lives and keep our lives and save our lives. And the second is that we didn't make ourselves. We can't keep our lives on track and we can't save ourselves. And, and so we get trapped between things like this. Um, I, I should feel happy, but I feel restless. I, I can't lose my heart for this ministry but I'm exhausted all the time. I shouldn't feel lonely. I feel alone. I should be able to talk myself out of this. I can't stop thinking about my pain. I must do it. I can't do it. 
Each of us is highly influenced by the story we live by. And everyone in here lives by a story. Whether you know it or not, you do. Psychoanalyst Carl Jung, he taught that people are not shaped by laws and governments and armies, but by powerful stories. Um, they give understanding to, to us and our world. The story that we live by is the way we apply meaning to our lives. I mean, even coming here th th this weekend from South Dakota, um, on the metro system, from Colorado, um, from your youth ministry, from just writing a draft of a book. I mean, what's the story you're living by? Uh, I'm, I'm a winner. I'm a loser, and I don't want anyone to know. I'm put together. I'm broken. You see, I have discovered and experienced that a person can profess that they live by a certain story, and yet they are governed by another one. A person can profess believing in a savior and yet worship at the altar of self-help. Because a story is more than facts. It is a faith statement. The story we live by is our true religion. The wise King Solomon said it this way. You know the verse. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. There have been many times since the sixth grade and that awful night in de detox that I have felt at war between these two stories that give very different meaning to the facts that I experience. So what's the, the deepest story? If you ask ten people to write about their experiences, you will hear different stories at different seasons in their life. Um, some may say that they are broken in a season of great sorrow. Um, some may say things are going great. But eventually, the deepest story for all of us is that we cannot keep this going. We cannot make it work. We cannot stay on track. That we are all losers. Now, maybe that's not what you came here to hear. And maybe you want me to add that somehow we win through courageous effort and we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. So that makes us strong. We don't like stories that don't have a happy ending. And so this is what happens. We experience hurt and wounds. And think, you know what? I, I deserve some relief from that. I can't feel this suffering all the time. It can't all be suffering. And so I'll gamble a little bit, drink a little bit, um, people please a little bit, sign up to do something else at the next conference. Um, this is actually how the addictive process works. Because... Um, those things, they do provide relief. 
um, you do feel a little bit of ease and comfort. And if you can get something under control, that feels powerful. But then God's wired us, so all those behaviors go back to making us feel guilt and shame and despair. The truth is suffering is inevitable. We only need to read God's stories to see that um, God does not shrink back from suffering. Think about it. Think about his stories, even just the New Testament stories. The people Jesus chose to interact with, um, the woman caught in adultery we talked about this morning, the prostitute humiliating herself, um, pouring the proceeds of her prostitution um, on Jesus' feet, the outcast tax collector, the pitiful man blind from birth, the, the, the grasping, dirty rag woman, the doubting, denying, betraying, best friend disciples. God tells these stories in part because their suffering, our suffering, is a reflection of God's suffering. I don't know if you expected to end tonight thinking about the suffering of God. I do believe that one of the reasons that we get so confused about suffering and we want to numb it and we have a whole culture um, that is based on commercialism to numb suffering is because we're afraid of being a loser. I mean, just call out some words that are associated with being a loser. Failure. Failure. Shame. Lonely, ineffective, embarrassing. I think that we misunderstand this suffering because we don't see God's suffering. And seeing God's suffering can transform ours. His anguish, his humiliation, his relentless pursuit of us. I can accept being a loser when I understand how God wins. You know that passage in the New Testament? How does God win? He wins by losing. The Apostle Paul said that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor so that through his poverty we might be made rich. I don't talk about this very often. And it's hard in this room because you feel so far away from me and I, I can't really tell if we're connecting or not, but I'm going to tell it. You know, when my family um, finally helped me get m me to a room in detox that night, 14 years ago, I saw a vision. I saw Jesus in that detox room. Now, you might scoff that I was a hallucinating drunk, but, but I recall this image with great clarity. When I saw him, I was in the room by myself, and I said, what are you doing here? 
He answered, You brought me with you. I remember thinking the next day that if that was true, that he was there when I got drunk, when I couldn't walk, when I tried to drink my own urine that my mother had to stop me from doing after giving the sample, that that he was in me and I was in him, and that is my deepest story. It's not a story about becoming a winner. It's a story about being loved. So, this deepest story, that I'm a loser, it's not a great motivational principle. A loser and a failure and my maker is God and how does he make me? Um, I don't think it's through self-assertion or self-help or self-rescuing. Um, we need to peer into the eyes of our suffering and see its reality. Confess it with others, as we talked about this morning, so that there will be connection. But we do it not to wallow around in all of the hardship that we experience and the victimization that sometimes happens, especially if you're a pastor in the church. We do this because in this communion, we can begin to see the image of God. The most radical experiences of emotional healing in not just seeing turmoil, but experiencing it in our stories, that's where we see the reflection of the deepest story, God's story. It is certain to me that self-help does not explain life. It only explains life's limitations. You've been on a diet. You tried to quit a habit or an addiction. Um, Self-help, it's not life, but it's the ending of life. In the Little Miss Sunshine movie, every character was was trying to save themselves and ended up creating their own private hell. And that's what happens when we think we can save ourselves with ourselves, get ourselves into the messes that we get ourselves into. In fact, when Dwayne, the teenager, welcomes his uncle to their home, he greets him by saying, Welcome to hell. When we live by a story of overcoming, making ourselves a winner, self-help, we create our own hell. We come face to face with the desperation and maybe we start to look for a different story to live by. We discover this wonderful New Testament truth that we see God's original purpose in everything created for everything Absolutely everything, above and below, visible and invisible, everything got started in him and finds purpose in him. He was there before any of it came into existence, 
He holds it all together right up to this very minute. So spacious is he that everything of God finds its proper place in him without crowding. Not only that, but all the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe get properly fixed and fit together in vibrant harmonies. As everyone works as hard as they can and shows up for every activity. Of course, that's not what it says. This happens all because of his death, his blood that poured from the cross. I want to give you three examples of the suffering of God and see what you identify with. Um, The first is God as a suffering parent. The emotional reality of God as a parent begins in his first story. We talked about it a little this morning when when Adam and Eve disobeyed and ate of the fruit and, and God came to meet them in the garden as he had every morning for this sweet fellowship and And I think he asks Adam his unending question to all his wayward children. The text says, God asked, where are you? He was God. He knew where Adam and Eve were hiding behind the fig leaves. His question is more the agonizing question of, Parents, maybe that you minister to in your youth groups. Parents of a daughter who is doing drugs and brashly announces, I can take care of myself, I can handle it. Where are you? I had a friend whose son was on the street for weeks in a vicious cycle of using meth and finding a way to pay for more meth. And and my friend spent nights in her car driving up and down the streets looking for her son. Where are you? Desperation in the context of parenting does not just come in the form of parents looking for children, but especially in this generation, and you know this, in the form of children looking for parents. Um, For many kids, you, you're their father, their mother, their counselor, their coach, their confidant, their encourager. When we've been abandoned and abused and misunderstood or neglected by our parents, we can be drawn into behaviors, like that circle I showed you back there of the eight, um, that guarantee a a reactment of the old familiar struggles that we've witnessed and tried to get away from. Before you surrender to a diagnosis, Um, that maybe you love too much and you're too needy for love and you need to shut down a little bit. Or before you think that I'm a little bit too emotional and 
passionate talking about love and relationships. Think about one of God's New Testament stories. I have often wondered how modern psychoanalysts would diagnose the father in this story in Luke 15. I mean, it's impossible to exaggerate his suffering. Um, as the prodigal ends up homeless and penniless and slopping hogs and eating from the pig pen. And it is similarly impossible to exaggerate the suffering of the father. As the text says, he daily sat on the porch and watched, waiting, wincing with hope for his wayward son. I love this passage. It's my favorite. It says, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. You see, I just imagine that son rehearsing his speech all the way home. I'm sorry. I know you told me not to do this. I know I did the exact wrong. Um, I'll sleep with the servants. I'll earn, pay every penny back. Uh, I'm, I'm, I don't even deserve to sleep in your house. I'll, I'll even sleep outside with the pigs again. And he comes home and his father is, is kissing him and he's starting to say, I, I'm so sorry. And the next verse in the Bible is my favorite verse. But the father wasn't listening. I think for a minute, the son might have given up hope that it was too late and he couldn't be welcomed back. But the text says the father wasn't listening as he turned and called for his servants to bring a fatted calf and a robe and the family ring for his son to get ready for a party. What is the deepest story in suffering? Um, you see, all suffering is about one thing. It's about resurrection. As Jared said this morning, making all things new. And maybe you've not known of a father who longs to gather you. In all your failures or achievements or fear or doubt, gather you in his arms and party with you. <laughs> um, you can raise a glass for me when you go out to your pub afterwards tonight. The second way we see the suffering of God as as a desperate lover. The love stories that people buy, $50 million worth of paperback romance novels, I told you that was um, increased 100% when the book Fifty Shades of Grey came out this past year. Um, Interestingly, in that book, the character, um, his name is Christian. 
and he pursues this woman as she resists him until she wins him over. And I don't recommend the book, and it's pornography, but there's an archetype there. <laughs> and um, it's certainly no more shocking than what we read in the book of Hosea. Um, God says to his lover in humiliating detail, you have lived as a prostitute with many lovers, and you'd return to me now? Look up into the barren heights and see, is there any place where you have not been ravished? By the roadside you sat waiting for lovers, sat like a nomad in the desert, you have defiled the land with your prostitution and wickedness. You have the brazen look of a prostitute, and you refuse to blush with shame. That's pretty graphic. And um, reveals a heart of suffering. If you've ever experienced betrayal or infidelity, and God's intention for this traitorous lover is even more staggering. Remember what he just said. You have the brazen look of a prostitute, and therefore, I am going to allure you. I'm going to lead you into the desert and speak tenderly to you. <laughs> that God invites harlots to intimacy? It's almost beyond comprehension that he desperately hungers for intimacy. Is it an inevitable mystery that, that somehow intersects with our stories of, of love lost and love sought and love endured? The revelation of God's desperate love compels us to consider that he is simply in love with us more than we can imagine. Our minds are incapable of reconciling um, it thinking about God this way. In fact, in the Old Testament story of God's love, the prostitute returns again and again and again and again to her old ways. And God does consider giving up on her, uh, on this lover who, who can't change her bad habits, on this loser who, who keeps going to the most despicable places. And then he unveils his lover's heart. I've experienced this as I have had a heart prone to wander, as we sang in the hymn tonight. The text says in the book of Isaiah, I have torn you to pieces that I might put you back together again. That's the reason for suffering. Um, no one longs for love or feels more loverless than we do when we're in the midst of sinning and failing and not making the mark and not looking like we have it all together. The deepest story shows God's heart. This is the beauty of Jesus' death on the cross. God's heart in his only son was crucified on the cross 
for love of us. Jesus, the word of God, the touch of God. And he is how God makes us and keeps us and saves us. The cross is the judgment of the world. And at the cross, grace descends into hell and leads a host of captives like me free. He came to seek and save and to love the destroyed. I can't help but think of my daughter and her sixth night of treatment. She still has subacute withdrawal syndromes because um, she was using a lot of benzos and she has DT, she has a tremor. Um, she doesn't have a house, she doesn't have any money. She doesn't have a job. I don't know how I would live with that story if it, I did not know that love has come to save the destroyed. God knew we'd all disobey and fail, that we'd lose, and he allows it so that he might have mercy and grace upon all, that he might have Jesus upon all that brokenness. We are made by him, saved by him, redeemed by him, seeing God as a desperate lover. It makes sense of some of the suffering in our own hearts. Author Robert Bly, you know, he writes about men. He explains why living by a different story might keep us from knowing and experiencing God as a desperate lover. He says some women, they, they want a, a passive man if they want a man at all. The church wants a tame man. The university wants a domesticated man. And the corporation wants a sanitized, hairless, shallow man. The desperate, wild, with longing to be loved, know that we need a wild man. <laughs> a man who will love us when we wander, when we drink too much, when we eat too much, when we try to drink our own urine. So, what's the deepest story? Maybe it's simply that you're a wild woman looking for a wild man. Or you're a wild man looking for a wild man. I love what Dan Allender wrote when he said, some of our stories describe abandonment, betrayal, and ambivalence. We experience losses and assaults as orphans and strangers and widows. Should it surprise us then that God wants to make himself known as the father who protects the orphan? As that wild brother who encourages the stranger or the wild lover who cherishes the widow, the triune God who is one wants to redeem 
our story and restore with his love what our story took from us. My pastor says it this way. Do not be afraid of a wild Jesus. He's the one you long for. So wild he'll hang on a cross and sacrifice everything for you. He wants your freely given naked heart. You don't need to be afraid to commit your life to someone who gives his life for you. And that brings us finally to God as the suffering Savior. I know redemption of my own sin and addiction and folly and trying to escape suffering came when I stopped reading the Bible as if it were a textbook of answers for Sunday school questions. Slowly, I became intrigued amazed and dumbfounded by the stories of the Bible. That's why I like this organization rooted in those stories. Reading John 19, I encountered a story of such such suffering that my pink women's devotional Bible fell to the floor and I wept as I saw anew the coarse wooden cross the gambling executioners, the crude nails, the gaping wounds, the cup of vinegar, the cry of utter despair from the fatherless son, and the agonizing turning away of the sonless father. I read that passage every day. I don't want to forget how much I'm loved. I I, I see in that passage more clearly every time I read it that God became the most hideous creature described by Frederick Buechner as as the one with the swollen lip and the cauliflower ear and the ruptured spleen. This was a God of desperate grace who desires that all men and women be saved. You want to live by the deepest story? Well, then this crucified one, he shows the way. Because he came not with the crushing impact of unbearable glory and blitz and lights and shows and contests and big numbers. He came in the way of weakness and vulnerability and need. Um, suffering maybe doesn't make sense all the time but it really doesn't make sense when we do not believe in this story of the greatest suffering of all at the cross the very first became last that we might be first The winners become losers so that losers can become winners. At the cross, Jesus revealed the glory of God, love, mercy, and unquenchable grace. 
And so suffering can compel us to dance. But it's only possible to the degree that I am lost in God's story. That's why I need to read it every day, because I forget. Um, Those of us who have created our own hell know there's no party in that hell. Um, But Jesus has invited us to a party that, that is wilder than we can even imagine, making all things new. It's a party for prodigals and addicts and and losers and liars and failures. And there are no requirements, no entrance fees, no credentials necessary. Don't we need to do something, though? Oh, remember the story this morning. Why Jesus tells stories about prodigals? Because we all become at risk for being like the Pharisee, the older brother, standing in the hell of his dark field, saving himself. This talk of suffering, how could it make a difference in your suffering? in my suffering? It's a good question. Because I wish there were nine steps that we could follow and we'd have freedom and healing. And then again, I don't. Because that wouldn't be true redemption. That would make it too easy for us to believe that we can save ourselves. But there's this person who is in us. Who lives to love us. Right where we are reading his stories, meditating on his stories, getting lost in his stories, allowing his stories to make sense of my own, invites me to surrender to this one who, the closer we get, (laughs) the less he sees any flaws, the more he loves me. Um... There's a mystery in this surrender. It allows no one to remain unchanged. If you see your suffering through the lens of a suffering God who, with who you have fellowship. Um, in that movie, Little Miss Sunshine, um, Every single one of the characters comes face to face with their own failures. And that's when they begin to love. The last one to fail here is Olive. (laughs) She finally makes it to the beauty pageant. And the competition, um, she wants to be named Little Miss Sunshine. But the dance that she's doing here for the talent competition... (laughs) Um, She learned from her perverted grandpa who died on the way and no one checked out the dance or the song and Olive doesn't know that it's kind of a strip tease to the song Super Freak. And so the pageant host and everyone is just trying to shut Olive down from dancing. But I love this part of the movie. As her very dysfunctional family watches on 
her father. <laughs> and then Her uncle and brother and mother, they all choose to lose with Olive. They dance with her. Now, maybe you think it's silly that this movie really speaks to me of a deeper story, but I've been Olive. Certain I could win. I had it figured out um, that I could make my life work, that I could make my children certainly not make the mistakes that I made, only to find myself humiliated making a fool of myself again. But God, the father of orphans and the brother of strangers and the lover of widows, the savior of sinners, chooses to lose with me. He joins me and asks me to join him, and that dance is love. I used to believe that we were all deeply searching for God, that our suffering, sadness, loneliness, restlessness, you name it, it it, um, was shaping that God-shaped hole inside of us. But experiencing redemption in the places of suffering, in the broken places of my story, have taught me that the deepest story is that God is searching for us. In the midst of pain, anger, foolishness, disappointment, heartache, it's easy to wonder, why isn't God doing something about this? But it is the pain and the failure and the foolishness that drive us to God. Do you understand what that means? Redemption does not mean that God meets our needs and our souls. Stop longing. We're satisfied. Redemption does not eradicate suffering. Redemption invites us to surrender. Surrender that we don't crave something from God. We Crave God. And you know what? God doesn't want something from you. He just wants you. So, in the days ahead, when suffering comes and suffering is inevitable, and you wonder why, The answer just might be that you are living by a wild, crazy, desperate story. And if you think it's all up to you to get it straightened out, 
that'll drive you crazy. Strangely, though, sanity comes in the worst suffering of all as we believe that it is all up to him and we let him love us. I'm aware as I finish that that might sound pretty simple. Um, If it was simple, we'd do it. To let him love us. This is my challenge to you. I won't probably see you at your next conference, but hopefully you'll see each other. Would you watch for the ways that God loves you? Would you pay a special attention when you're suffering? Would you put your glasses on then especially? So that as you come together, you can share in the jubilation that all of suffering, the purpose for it all is is resurrection. And you can tell your Easter stories. And um, God will be glorified. I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing two more songs. And I appreciate you um, letting me be here with you on a weekend when, quite honestly, I'm suffering a little. And um, it was good, good to hear the gospel. Dear Jesus, I thank you um, for speaking to me. That you love me when I'm good for nothing, when the PowerPoint doesn't work, um, when the hem of my pants is unraveling and I keep stepping on the back of my pants and my mouth is dry and I can't find the water and um, I'm thinking about my daughter in a 30-day treatment center. That when I am good for nothing, you love me fully. And oh God, I pray that you would give us the faith because we don't have it on our own. That you would give us the faith in the days ahead that when you seem like you're good for nothing, because you're not making things happen like we want you to, that we would love you. I long for that intimacy. And yet we need your help even in that. So help us, Lord Jesus. Amen.